Support for Gig with Mike Redman comes from Music Connection. For 45 years, connecting artists and musicians with each other and the industry. And you can find them on the web at musicconnection.com. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Gig, the ultimate podcast for learning about jobs in the music and film industry. I'm your host, Mike Redman. You most likely will not know my next guest, Dan Carlin, but you should. Dan's dad and his family and eventually the entire neighborhood were the start of Segway Music, the motion picture and television industry's largest provider of on-set post-production music services, including well over a thousand film and TV productions. Dan is also a renowned educator, first at Berkeley College as the chair of their film scoring department, and later as the director of screen scoring at USC, as well as chairman of the Grammys. Dan's now comfortable in his mountain paradise, where we had a wonderful conversation via Zoom. Hey, how are you? How are you, pal? You are the recent director of film scoring for USC, Wharton School of Music. Right. Uh, probably the most prestigious music, film music program in the world, I think. Um, would you tell me, talk a little bit about you know your feelings about the time you spent there and maybe a couple of highlights that stood out to you that you'll always remember as being amazing? Okay, well, if I can just back up to... Berkeley, because Berkeley was my first. When I set up the business, I ran the Henry Mancini Institute for a couple of years, um, and that was uh, about music education. But it wasn't working at a school. We worked with schools, but so. But, but then I I got this call to go to Berkeley uh, College of Music, which is you know at that time forty three hundred students. USC is forty three thousand students. Oh my god! But gosh, at Berkeley. Yeah. It's all music all the time. I mean, everybody there loves music. So it's a different, and it's a college, not a university. Um, and so it's it's kind of a different environment. Um, and but and I loved working there. And I was there for five years, and we established a master's program that we set up in Valencia, Spain, and we created a new recording studio and you know, did all, all the kinds of stuff that you would want a, a good program to do. And and while we were there, um, that was named the number one program um, in the world. So anyway, but it's an undergraduate program there and then the graduate programs in, in Valencia. So five years into this thing, I get a call from the dean at USC and, and the Thornton Music School. And he says, um, our guy that's been here 10 years is leaving. And we're looking for somebody new and your name keeps popping up. Would you come out and do an interview? And so I came back and, and, uh, did an interview and, you know, it was, <laughs> there were like three of the people on the committee were people I've worked with for 30 years, you know, Bruce. Brown. <laughs> Interesting interview. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Dick McGillivray and, and Kenny Hall. And so who was Jerry Goldsmith's music editor. So, so. The, the dean didn't stand a chance. He told me later, he said, there's just no way that I couldn't hire you. Um, these guys told me they, they would leave. So, And I, I wasn't anxious to leave Berkeley, except we were missing our family and our friends out here, our community. And, and so, um, so we did come out here. And uh, it, it, as I say, it's a different situation. Um, the university is not focused there on music at all. I mean, they know they have a music school, and, they, and it's a good music school with a good reputation. Um, but it's it's you're just one of many things on that, and you're certainly not as important as the football team. 
<laughs> is anything more important? So, no, I'm sorry. So that sorry, was I didn't idea. mean that. Okay. Oh, I did. I, I kind of did. Yeah, oh, whatever. Uh, I know. Yeah, I know. So one of the things that I said to the dean was that, you know, NYU has a, has a master's degree program. And we should, this, this thing that we're doing, it's called a graduate certificate program. And when you graduated, you didn't, you didn't, they didn't even count you. You couldn't claim to be uh, an alumnus uh, or an alumna, alumni, alumna, alumna for women, alumnus for men, right? <laughs> so I can get my Latin straight. Sorry, Father. Um, so um, in, anyway, um, it, we, it, I, I wanted to make it a master's degree program. He said, well, we've tried in the past, but, you know, let's. Let's try a different approach. And we did, and it was successful. And ultimately, it, it was named the, the best program. You know, there was some shuffling, but the major thing was really getting that master's program off the ground. Could you talk about a student that came through one of your programs that, man, as soon as you knew them and heard them or watched them, that you knew they were going to be successful because there was nothing that was going to stop them? Yeah, that's that's that is true. Um, there are those students. Uh, one of them uh, is from Italy, Marco Antonini, um, and um, you know we we get about two hundred applicants every year, mm -hmm. <laughs> and we have to narrow it down. We can only take twenty. Wow, I didn't, had no idea it was that few. Well, the the reason is is that if we have twenty, they can have fourteen minutes on the stand at each of our. 10 or 11 scoring sessions every year. And, and um, if we have more than that, then, you know, you, you cut pretty soon. You just, it's not effective at all. So we, we kind of drew the line there. Um, so, so we have to go through all these 200 people and, um, you know, we have, of course, we have a committee that does that and faculty members. And, um, but there's some people that just jump out at you right away and go, holy crap, you know, we definitely want this student here, not only because this person's probably going to be successful, but will be great inspiration and influence on the other students will be very helpful. And so so one of those was, for me, was this guy, Marco Antonini. Um, and Bruce Broughton, who was on our committee, the, at that time he was teaching with us, he, he, he spotted him right away also and informed him about a contest in Spain where they have a winery that they've reopened after a couple of generations, apparently. And um, they made like, I don't know, an eight minute documentary on this and then had a competition, a worldwide competition, inviting anybody to write for this. And Bruce heard about it and he went to Marco and he said, you should apply for this. Oh, the reason Bruce heard about it, he was on the, the judging committee, but he had to withdraw because Marco lied. Uh, and yeah, and, and he won, and he won like 50,000 euros was the problem. It paid for his, his, his year at USC. <laughs> it was just fantastic. And he's doing very well now. What's your idea about, you know, just where the film industry's headed these days? Is there, is there, are there more opportunities for people that, that were at your school? Are there less? Are they more competitive? What do you, what do you think? Well, um, there's more product now, uh, not necessarily more movies, although, uh, I don't know what those numbers are, but 
you know, things got screwy because of the pandemic. So it threw, it threw off the, the arc. Sure, sure. We're not really sure, but but there's, you know, there's so much product being made uh, <clears throat> that there are jobs uh, for music editors and music supervisors. So in the and you know editors and the field that I that I'm somewhat familiar with, um, it's it's. Uh, but your question, if you don't mind, uh, I'd like to just speak a little bit about um, or discuss with you anyway, and get your response too about the changes that are going on, not just with technology, but in the style of music, because. Um, my my heyday um, was melodic scoring. Um, took place during melodic scoring. I, I was not ever trained to do that, nor did I try. I did arranging and and stuff and conducting, but I never tried to to be a composer. I never trained for that or attempted to do it. So, <clears throat> but the the people that I admired so much that were successful at it. Um, uh, where they would take a, they'd create a theme, and then develop that theme. One of my all-time favorite scores was uh, by Ennio Morricone for the Mission. It's three main themes in that movie, and by the time you get to the end of the movie, they're all playing at the same time. Now, that that doesn't occur to you in Real Twelve. That's a vision you have to have from the very beginning of the movie, and so. Uh, for me, that that that's just great art, and he's not the only one to do that stuff. But that's the most blatant example I can think of in a movie that should have won an Academy Award but didn't. But anyway, so but what's happened since then, um, starting in the '90s, I would I would say, um, was this thing that we're leaning more toward um, ambiance and uh non non melodic approaches and sound design incorporated in the music and whatnot so <clears throat> and i don't want to put that down and there are people that are really good at it um uh, uh but it's not the way i was taught to it's like if you're an art historian or something or not you know it, it's not the way i was taught to look at film music and so it's difficult for me it's challenging for me to 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 get behind this stuff um when i think oh man wouldn't it be great if she had a theme in this music I'm a move, I'm, so that then when somebody else is singing about her and you just hit those little notes you go oh he's thinking about her you know and so they so but that's not the approach now and directors don't want it and so composers have have learned that, and every director wants to be as innovative as possible on a, on a movie, and so doesn't want it to sound like the last movie. And so you're getting more and more experimenting with this stuff. What I what I'm curious to know, and what um, I would ask <laughs> folks in in the know is, you know, so are we still juggling around with that stuff, and we're going to come to some sort of a compromise, or are we going to leave that melodic stuff behind? Would you share with us our, your version of the story you told me many years ago about your father and how he decided to leave the business and how it started? Sure. Thank, thanks. Thanks for that. And I'm listen. I'm always happy to honor my father. He he um, he was one of the uh, music editors that uh, participated in the 
in the old system, which was in the until about the the early 70s, every job that you see on the on the screen credits um, was done by somebody who's who uh, virtually everyone um, is hired by the studios. So each studio had a music department, they had an editorial department, they had a writing department, they had directing. You know, you belong. You were affiliated with with one studio, and that's how it was with music editors. And so my dad. <coughs> Um, you know, worked on several uh, series like that, uh, uh, Lassie and Mission Impossible um, and, and, and shows that were, you know, the Untouchables that were big uh, series at that time. And one of the, the composers that he got to work with was uh, Jerry Fielding, um, who later was uh, received an Oscar nomination for um, the Outlaw Josie Wills, one of these oh, wow. early directing films. Yeah. Um, so, um, <clears throat> so anyway, but Jerry and my dad became very close friends. And, and then Jerry got a job for an independent studio or for an independent production company. Uh, and because they couldn't uh, pay him uh, through the union because they were not a union signatory. My dad had to form his own company, which he he laughingly referred to as Lada. His wife at that time was Lavani, and he was Dan, so they just called it Lada or La Da, you know, Lada Productions. But he, it was like when an attorney or, or a doctor, uh, you know, incorporates, so that then they pay themselves from their own company and has tax advantages. But in his case, it was mainly just to be able to pay his health and welfare, keep his medical, you know, pension and health and welfare going. And so he had to form this company, he had no intention of <clears throat> doing anything besides being an independent worker. Well, during the 60s and 70s, the late 60s, early 70s, you, you know, uh, you were around <laughs> a uh, little bit. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was definitely around. <laughs> yeah. So the culture was exploding. As you remember, we were in a cultural revolution and filmmakers wanted to make movies about that stuff. And, and you know. The, the studios were walking on eggshells because in the 50s, they dealt with McCarthyism and, the, you know, the, you know, that um, the red uh, scare and all that sort of stuff and the blacklists and whatnot. And Jerry Fielding, in fact, is one of the people that got blacklisted. He had to he had to leave the business for a while uh, because he had been affiliated with, you know, a communist organization, communist affiliated organization. Wasn't a communist, but um, but in the, but in those days, if you were anti-fascist, you know, you could be labeled. So anyway, sorry, I'm getting off track. But okay, so so politics were a big deal. Well, the studios didn't want to make those kind of movies, so independent-minded producers and directors formed their own production companies, but to, to make these kind of movies and um, like Easy Rider, for instance, you know, uh, those kind of those kind of films. That, that were trend setting and um but because they didn't have they they didn't have uh, access to the studio then they didn't have access to the studio infrastructure no art department no music department no editorial department none of that so one of the one of the people that were 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 one of the uh, production companies came to my dad and said listen we need to set up a uh 
we, we don't know how to do a budget for a composer. We don't know where to get a studio. So anyway, can you take care of that stuff for us? Because he had a good reputation as a music editor, was respected, you know, and and had been in the business for a while. So they um, so that's what we did. Now, my dad was not interested in doing that part. So I had a bit of economic training, political economy and whatnot from my graduate days. And and um, so I so he said, I want once you handle this. So I said, OK, I will. And the first major project I got, there was a TV project. And then somehow and I don't know how, I, but I stumbled into the Black Stallion, uh, Francis Coppola's American Zoetrope Company, which, again, had no access to that. stuff. So I became the music company. We became, sorry, I became a music supervisor, but we became the music company for Francis um, uh, production company. And um, and that just led, you know, from one to, you know, in the, our business, you know, you get good credits. I mean, that film got Academy Award and got a Golden Globe nomination for score. And and so when you get those kind of credits, then people say, oh, you must know what you're doing. And so, and you did, <laughs> and we, and I, yes, we, did. And, and so my dad, my dad's role then became to kind of tr- not only to do shows as a music editor, but to train the rest of the people coming in. And, and it, as you said in the bios, my, my brother Tom and my sister Kathy and Patty and our cousins Susie and JJ and Danny and the, the neighbor's son. Um, and you know, uh, Mike Tronic was, was actually, who's a very successful film editor now. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, one of the governors at the motion picture Academy, Mike was actually the one, one person who preceded me in the company. Uh, he'd gone to my dad and said, will you train me? And so my dad, trained Mike and Mike had another friend and he brought him in Alan Rosen, who was a photographer, but you know, and then we got, um, somebody else was a friend of Bob Badamy, who was a trumpet player down in San Diego and hired Bob. And now he's like the super music editor. My dad's best friend had a son, Jeff Carson, who we brought in. Jeff now, you know, does all of Alan Silvestri's and John Debney's movies um, as a music editor. So so my dad had this great legacy and uh, was admired by many people. And so I got to bask in the glow of that. Uh, and so I had an instant credibility which is, which you know, that that's the advantage. One of the advantages of nepotism, obviously. Um, and so, um, as long as I didn't screw up too badly, and I made some mistakes, um, but but they, you know, they were survivable in terms of doing things correctly and getting the budget right and talking to the right and stuff, you know. But that's how it it just grew and grew um, because my dad was so good at what he did, and he trained the rest of us to be good. Um, the demand kept coming in. And so we got up to 30, we had up to 30 people at one point. It was, it was really quite amazing and, uh, really, you know, hard work, but really joyful time. You know, you know, you get together on a good team and it's really a great pleasure. And that's the great thing about this business is collaboration. It's not really, unless you're a writer like yourself, um, but you're also a composer. So you know about work, you know, what is like to sit there at the blank page um and of course you do that as a composer too but then you start bringing in collaborators um where with when you're writing you don't you know it's the editor maybe and that's about it so so in our business uh collaboration is key 
and you have to be a really good team player. And um, and if you are, then everybody, you know, here, here's here's an advantage. For instance, if you're working on a t- on a tough project as say a music editor, and it's gonna you can see, you know, the dubbing. Now we're going, we're dubbing tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, and they've just changed reel thirteen, or they've changed reel one. Worse, because they're going to dub in order. Um, then, then it's like, oh my god, I'm I'm going to be up all night trying to fix this stuff. Well, at our company, it was like, hey, um, Curtis Roush is on this project, and he's 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 in he's in a jam. Who can stay tonight and help? And so four or five of us would stay, and then we'd all be out of there at 10 o'clock instead of him being there all night long. And so and so Curtis, of course, remembers that. And the next time somebody's in trouble, he's like, hey, I'm here to help. What do you need? And Or you get in a jam on a stage where you, you need a music editor on the stage uh, to consult with the director, but they're making changes in the in the booth. So somebody would, you can't be in two places at once. So one of our our, our music editors, my sister, would run over and uh, go in the booth and make film changes while the regular music editors on the stage. So um, that was that was really that's when I really uh, gained a great um, love for working collaborative, working on teams. It was terrific stuff, and so that's that's how the that's the rationale for the creation of the company, and um, and we were in the right place at the right time. With the right guy, not me, my dad. <laughs> That's very cool. Hey, thank you for sharing that. I think it's one of the things that makes you so relevant in the industry, you know, that, that you were there. It just reminds me, I can't remember who I was talking to, but they, they kind of just put it in two camps. They said, you have thematic scores and you have the basic underscore, the music that's there that you never noticed. It never exists. It, it, it only is there to support the visual at that moment. And very, very few themes. And, and I tend to see, I don't know, I tend to see both fairly regularly. Although, um, when I was talking to uh, Mark Scruton yesterday, he was talking about the series work that's out now. Uh, the turnaround times for everything except the $200 million projects. Um, there's not much time. And you know, as well as I do, you know, you're scoring a film, you know, you've got some themes going back and forth and stuff, but you don't go to work to work. You know, that thing's almost, you know, locked. Uh, and so if they're doing a, just say a one hour episode of TV, that time he used to have, you know, you used to have um, like 10, 12 days to write that episode. To, to score that episode now you've got two and and so i wonder i don't know one part of me says well i do know this for a fact that i mean that most of these guys that are doing this kind of work they just have their library of you know cues that go for that thing and they're just kind of stretching them and moving them and changing them a little bit just to knock it out knock it out knock it out so that would seem like it doesn't leave you time to develop themes very well well that's a good point that, that's a very good point. Uh, and also the, you know, the instantaneous thing with technology, with you flip a switch and hit this, and you can create stuff. Director goes, oh yeah, I like that. I like, you know, so, but, but here's the good side of that. And it goes back to your original question. And thanks for indulging me on this, on this aspect of the, 
of, of, of art, the artist part. Now, now if we get to the craft part, which is um, that uh, it, and, and I gave that example with Duncan Thumb, it takes a team now. Uh, it used to be just you, uh, but now um, it, it, it very frequently takes a team because of this two-day turnaround. So more, more positions open up. So we, we see, at least our experience at FC, when our students graduate, most of them are getting jobs as uh, an assistant to somebody on somebody's team. They're not going to be the first assistant because the first assistant worked his or her way up, just as this as this uh, graduate will do eventually. But at the same time, then they're out seeking low budget opportunities for other things. So they're not getting a lot of sleep. And honestly, um, it takes you know maybe about. Uh, last time we 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 talked, we did a kind of serious investigation about this. It took about f- average five years for people to get to the point where they didn't have to worry about the rent. Uh, and we, you know, that's a really tough deal when you think about you know other people who go to graduate school and go to go to work, whether they're finance or law or medicine or you know. So it, you better love your art, right? Is there anything else, Dan, that you'd like to like just to share about um, the business, the industry, yourself? Well, I'm I'm um, I'm optimistic uh, about the future for people in our in our work. Uh, we've been through some really challenging times, and I said, as I said, the the pandemic really skewed uh, the the arcs, and so we don't we're not sure where we're going to land at this point, and it's it's impacted what what. One thing that's come out of it is that is the more and more people have realized that they can work at home, um, and and you know I can I can work with you on a project because I can just slip this file on my computer and send it to you, and we can mess around on it together. Got latency issues to deal with? Well, somebody's going to solve that. We'll figure that that's that stuff out. So all this stuff is creating new opportunities for people, um, and and you know you you really. You can't downplay the importance of technology. Of course, that that's that's really crucial. It's all, you know, it used to be, and, and John Williams is terrific, and and but he's one of the last guys I know. In fact, he's the only guy I know uh, that still sits down with blank manuscript paper at his piano and starts writing out a score. Everybody else is using all this technology that they can't keep running themselves. So they have to hire people to do it. And and some of the people they hire are people that are going to schools and learning about composition, but also excelling in technology so they can go and help you with the latest stuff. All right. And they can make sure your studio keeps running. And then you give them a cue to do because you're running late and they they knock it out and you go, this is great. And pretty soon, I mean, I have a one of the composers that uh, on, on the faculty members is a composer at SE, Lauren Schrag. He, he, the guy that he's been his assistant for, I don't know, maybe 10 years, 12 years. Um, he, he, he now does, they just split. Everything is split on, on the cue sheets. That's just it. Because he said he was getting to the point where he was so good. And it allowed me, you know, Lawrence is not an old man, but, you know, he's getting older. And, and it's like he said, I don't have to work as hard, but I'm still developing the themes and uh, working with my assistant. and. And there it goes. So I think 
you know, it, it's um, it's difficult and, um, you know, intimidating uh, to to go in and say, OK, I'm going to spend sixty thousand dollars to go to school, get a degree in composition. But it's not it's not just what. So, so OK, there's what you learn from the faculty and your fellow students, but it's also then meeting the Ryan Kuglers of the world across the street and getting to work with them and impressing the other people you're in school with so that when they go out and get a job like Duncan Thumb picks up the phone and says, hey, come on over. I, I, I need some help. Are you free? You know, and, and so I, as I say, I am optimistic about, about that future. And I think, but, but what it is, and I mentioned this earlier, is what my friend Bill Ross, a very good composer, orchestrator, arranger, talks about the toolkit. You know, the bigger your toolkit, the more times you can say yes. And the more times you can say yes, the more times people are going to ask you. And so that's how you. I, ha I have this, you know, this <laughs> motto, work hard, be nice and get lucky. Oh, I like that. Can oh, I, absolutely. Can I steal that? I'm going to steal that, put it on a book. No kidding. <laughs> Please do. Because, and, and, and so people say, well, what about the luck part? And I, and I refer to Samuel Goldwyn, who said, the, I find that the harder I work, the luckier I get. And it's absolutely true. That luck thing is, is about being in the right place at the right time. And you sometimes don't have any control over that. But if you are at a lot of places at a lot of different times, you're going to get luckier because somebody's going to say, oh, you know, this happened to me once in the, in the grocery store. I ran into somebody that said they were looking, somebody was looking that they were working with, was looking for a, comp, uh, a conductor on a session. I picked up the phone and I got that gig. Now that's really, that happened once in my career, but I don't know that that experience didn't lead to somebody else recommending me for something. I don't know. Marco Antonini, I was telling you about earlier, a successful student from Italy. He got a gig because one of the violinists uh, at one of our scoring sessions, her brother-in-law or somebody like that, a cousin or somebody, some relative, was doing a movie and they had to fire the composer because it just didn't work and they had very little money left and he was telling her about it. He didn't know what to do and she said, I think you should, the, the one student that stood out for me at this session was this guy, Marco Antonini. So Marco got that gig. I know, but you never know who's watching you. You never know who's paying attention. And so if you do good work, really, you, you throw yourself and you're a nice person, you're going to get lucky sooner or later. And so that's really my the best advice I can give. Boy, that is uh, what a wonderful place to leave that. Yeah. Gosh darn it. I, I, I wish I had a chance to work with you. And I, I'll just leave you with this thought, which is that um, I didn't show you the entire place. We have three guest bedrooms, and you, you know, you'd be a welcome visitor with a bottle of champagne and some cheese and crackers. And I may just take you up on that. I mean, that's a pretty doggone nice offer. And and since we didn't get to work together, at least we can go out and have a drink on the lake together. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Dan, you take care of yourself. Okay, you too, Michael. Be well and stay in touch. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thank you. Bye-bye. Theme music for Gig with Mike Redmond was composed and produced by Other Animal. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of Gig with Mike Redmond. If you like what you heard, I'd ask that you subscribe and like us. 
And finally, if you have questions about a job or ideas for an episode, contact me at gigwithmikeredmond at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Mike Redmond, signing off.